0: This podcast is brought to you by gold sponsor Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry, and by silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business.
1: Hello, and welcome back to Pazla's Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us for our fourth episode of the podcast series. Each month, we bring you insights and perspective from around the region on the news and developments shaping the securities lending industry. Coming up in this episode, as South Korea and Taiwan continue their curbs on short selling, we ask if these restrictions actually work. More insight from industry legend Roy Zimmerhansel later in the show. And as we count down to PASL's first in-person event in three years, we look at what makes the event unique in APAC. First up, though. We covered technology on our last podcast, so it's time to get back to specific Asia market-related color. Joining us now to help us with a deep dive into Taiwan and Singapore is Alison Ching, Director, BNP Hong Kong, and Ed Cartwright, Director, UBS Singapore. Welcome, guys. Hello, hello.
0: Hello, everybody.
1: Alison, let's start off with the basics. Taiwan is by far the hottest securities lending market in Asia for the last two years. Despite it being very niche-oriented, very bespoke, For example, there's limited daily short sale quota. On top of that, there's borrowing caps on lending rates. It does beg the question, if Taiwan is so nuanced, why is it so popular?
0: I think mainly because the breadth of the universe, it makes it very interesting and allows for access and opportunities in small to mid-cap names, which a lot of markets don't offer anymore. And for global-related sector reasons, there's a lot of volatility and impact from global moves and obvious geopolitical news, such as the Apple space, such as the semiconductor space. I think these two are the main reasons which a lot of the global investors are still very targeted in Taiwan.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense, especially the Taiwan index, the TAI-X, was up, what, 150% from just post-COVID to January this year. That's 18 months of massive growth. That's almost Bitcoin growth territory. So probably to some extent, maybe directional demand too, I assume?
0: Yes, most definitely. And it also went downhill a lot in the past two and a half years. So I think COVID has definitely played a big impact.
1: Yeah, sounds like my retirement at this point. (laughs) Uh, In light of recent increased volatility in the global markets, are there plans to develop Taiwan to be in line with global standards and move towards a developed market, specifically the ability to on lend. Or remove the max borrowing fees or remove the existing 18-month maturity rule for all securities finance trades?
0: I think following China's military drills um, alongside the economic sanctions, the overall geopolitical tensions, the market volatility, rising rates... Overall, the FSC has most definitely been putting a lot of focus into stabilizing the market and ensuring that the Taiwan economy, the markets and the foreign investors are in line with expectations and not moving towards the short sale banning scenario, which is the most extreme case. Now, earlier reports have said that Taiwan Stock Exchange has started adopting stabilizing measures um, if needed in case there were irrational declines in the local equity space. Now, there has been a lot of movement in the recent weeks, if not months. And with this in mind, the chances of Taiwan SBL being more in line with global structures are somewhat unrealistic, at least in the forthcoming future. It has been in the talks for several years now, and it will be interesting to see if Taiwan will ever allow onward lending in the onshore space, for example, reducing the 18-months cap that you mentioned, eliminating the max borrow rate of 16, and even more variations of asset classes as collateral, which currently it does not allow so there's a there's a lot of changes that we have seen over the past year for example some of the big four names which you know have gone to cap reduction and um, there's been a lot of changes in terms of the support framework within the markets from capital from raising margin requirements etc so it'll be interesting to see how the next couple of months of the changes evolve but um, in this current standpoint I think it's not exactly moving in that direction I would say
1: Speaking of changes, recently the SFC in Taiwan curbed short selling by reducing the daily short sell quota from 30% to 20% now 10%. Do you see this as a valid response and what potential limitations does that create and will the reducing of the short sell quota could that affect daily flows?
0: There's been a lot of news in Taiwan recently, Matt, so I don't even know where to start. So with Taiwan dollars being at the weakest level since 2017, the SFSC has been wanting um, to maintain investor confidence with orderly market liquidity, and the NSF has actively been buying these large caps to support the index. Now, Taiwan has actually banned a short selling in the past 15 years, I think this banned it about four times. And, you know, it's within expectation that, that this could happen, you know, post-election, post the index potentially falling further than the 12,000 support level, which is um, the 10 years moving average. I mean, on the 30th of September, the FSC has announced that an effective two days they will carry out two actions to maintain the order, orderly and stable markets to protect investors by lowering the short sale quota, as you said, and then the margin ratio and then within a week and a half it reduced that a again, from 20% to 10%. Now, that has um, made a significant impact to the market, not so much the original 30 to 20, because that was already the previous short sale quota iteration. However, the change to 10% has meant that the overall short sale turnover has dropped over roughly about 20 to 25%. And there's also been a significant uptick of names from roughly 15 names to 150 names, which has reached the total short sale quota on a daily basis, which then Really, really puts the focus in um in long sell offering basically, um, given that the sh- short short sell quota is so difficult to grab. Now, onshore speculation is is that there's been a lot of talks and the you know when. TWSE hits the twelve hundred no twelve thousand level, it could potentially be the next trigger point. And some of the anticipated measures are, you know, potential implementation of uptick rule across all the names, where, you know, all the names cannot be short sold prior to yesterday's close. And, you know, which is more likely than a full short sell ban ahead of these elections coming up.
1: And if Taiwan is so popular, I would assume that supply or inventory would naturally increase, right? meaning the onshore lenders in Taiwan dip into their retail sector to lend. What could our industry do to improve foreign or offshore supply, whether it be pension funds or sovereign wealth funds?
0: That's a great question. So additional offshore supply would definitely have a dynamic effect on the market and adding more illiquidity might reduce the overall borrowing fees but then again it would most certainly add to the demand for taiwan as well so so matt you know you being on the lending side why why don't you tell us a little bit why lenders are so reluctant to add new supply in taiwan
1: ah oh, touche you did get me on that uh that is an excellent point allison i would assume that for agent lenders from their perspective Working their respective beneficial owners to unlock additional supply, especially in Taiwan, is the number one Asia priority in 2022. And hopefully questions and answers like this help provide a stepping stone to help people feel more comfortable with lending in Taiwan. But to answer your question directly, I would anticipate that overall supply in Taiwan would probably see an uptick of 20% in 2023, mostly based on cause and effect of the huge demand that we've seen in Taiwan this year. So, yeah, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Uh, Switching gears a little, Ed, you're the perfect person to ask this question, as there's always a healthy competition between cities, and it's definitely the elephant in the room the past few months, as we've seen a steady migration of securities finance personnel move from Hong Kong to Singapore. and You were the first one to move from Hong Kong to Singapore back in, what, December 2021? Can you walk the audience through why
2: we've seen this migration? Yeah. I mean, given the last two years, I think the market's kind of proven that – you don't really need to be in any specific place in order to do your job. You know, we spent two years where you had most of the office working from home, working from recovery sites, and, you know, you had a handful of skeleton crews sitting in the main office. And so the idea that's kind of prevailed over the last 10 years that, you know, you need everybody sitting together in the same row of desks in order to be functional, it's just been completely thrown out the window and disproven. So, you know, you've got, you know, personal reasons. You've got kind of business risk reasons of saying, look, we don't want to have everybody in the same room. Let's start putting people in other places. Where do we want to go? And, you know, you've got, you know, all the banks with offices in Tokyo and Australia. You know, that's fine. However, you know, you're a bit more removed. You're kind of in the wrong time zone, especially if you're down in Australia. Whereas Singapore, you've got the same time zone. You've got no issues in that respect. And then you also have the added benefit that you've got a significant client base both on the kind of beneficial owner side the funding counterparty side as well as you know a lot of the significant hedge funds globally and in the region they're based out here Uh, and so you don't have any loss of capability or access by moving to singapore and you actually gain a lot of client connectivity that you don't necessarily have in hong kong Uh, especially you know in a situation like the last two years where kind of travel Within the region is not as seamless as it has been in the past. You know, where Hong Kong and Singapore are no longer just a three hour flight away, but there's a lot of hurdles to kind of getting travel. You know, corporate budgets have cut somewhat. You know, the corporate risk of, look, if we send somebody overseas and they get ill, that's, you know, a risk we don't really want to take. So I think, yeah, you're going to have a lot of businesses that are looking at Singapore with an idea of either diversifying their footprints from where they have staff and where they need key staff. As well as basically saying, look, you know, we've we've got clients and counterparties sitting in in Singapore. It makes sense to have people who are interacting with them and covering them in the same jurisdiction. Yeah, let me pull on that string a little bit. What's the macro difference between the Hong
1: Kong market and Singapore market in regards to flow, liquidity and overall activity?
2: So Singapore as a standalone market is obviously a lot smaller than Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is always going to be the kind of the gateway into the greater China region. You're always going to have yeah you know, the HS listing in Hong Kong, obviously Connect is massive. Singapore, it's a very domestic market. It's, you know, you're, it's dominated by the kind of the local, the REITs, the banks, the kind of the uh, very defensive consumer stocks here. However, you know, even if you're sitting here, you don't cover Singapore in the same way that you know people sitting in Hong Kong don't just cover Greater China. So you're actually you're still covering the same region. And so, sitting on the desk as a trader your workflow is no different to what it would be if you're in Hong Kong.
1: Now, while we're on the macro securities finance topics, you're one of the very few people in Asia that have traded both APAC and EMEA. Talk to me like I'm a two-year-old. Any similarities, differences between those markets? In which region do you prefer and why?
2: The devil is in the detail. I mean, Europe, you have a sizable market, but it's also very homogenous. You've got a lot of nominal countries. However, you know, you're, most of them have the same currency. You're dealing with very standardized rules. Yes, you've got fringe markets like Turkey and the UK, where you've got a lot of political risk and inflation, but for the most part, it's a fairly vanilla homogenized market, which is also extremely commoditized these days. Whereas in Asia, you've got vastly different trading regimes across the markets. You've got the very liquid markets like Japan, which are you know, akin to trading in the US or Europe. Then you've also got the very illiquid markets with funky structures like Thailand, where you've got three different lines for the same stock, but you can't trade them all. The liquidity is different on the lines. However, they don't necessarily trade on the board where they're nominally listed. And so you've got a much broader knowledge base that you have to have in order to cover APAC than you do EMEA. And so I much prefer APAC over the the two regions, just because every day is very different. You know, you can be focused on you know, Thailand one day, Malaysia the next, Hong Kong. You know, you have very different and diverse kind of daily flow. Yeah, that's that's all news to me. I've
1: never, I've barely even flown over Europe, no less <laughs> traded it, and and I have one last one for you. Rumor has it that when you started at UBS, they gave you a crystal ball. Do you mind dusting that off and giving us your thoughts on which market in APAC will be the hottest in
2: twenty twenty three and why? I think, I mean, China, Qfing Connect. That's always going to be significant, especially, you know, if you've still got the murmurs of kind of the kind of onshore SBL market opening up more and kind of banks getting in there. But outside of China, I really think you're going to have a lot more interest in kind of the ASEAN markets, so kind of like Malaysia in particular. Uh, So Malaysia and Thailand, they're obviously the two more liquid of the, the fun end of the ASEAN spectrum. We're seeing from our side, we're seeing a lot of clients kind of leaning into these markets a lot more because you've got fewer participants, it's less crowded. There's a lot more alpha to be had from a lot of the hedge fund strategies as opposed to Japan and Australia, which are extremely crowded and everybody's trading at a tiny spread.
1: Yeah, that's a good point about illiquidity. Uh, Ed, Allison, that about wraps it up. We certainly appreciate your time and more importantly, your market color and insights. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Our next legend of the market has had a very distinguished career in securities finance, dating all the way back to the glory days of the 80s. And once upon a time, he was even a member of PASLA. It is my pleasure to welcome back to Asia, Roy Zimmerhansel. Welcome, Roy.
3: Thanks very much, Matt, and thanks for the invitation.
1: Now, I'd like to get your view on some of the changes in securities finance a little later, but given the market's volatility and the recent changes, increasing short sale restrictions, I think we just dive headfirst into it. What's your opinion on the effectiveness of short-sell bans?
3: Well, look, this is something that I've been writing about for probably 14, 15 years now. And look, it's a fact that liquidity is going to be negatively impacted just because a portion of the market is going to be excluded, right? So, you won't have short-sellers in the trading inverse, which means there's fewer traders and less volume. But, but short-selling bans, like, they intentionally damage price discovery, right? Because prices then can only be set by people that um, are either uh, holders of an asset that wanna dispose of it or people that are thinking of buying it. So it skews markets. So the truth is while there's short selling bands, an investor can't really trust any of the prices that they actually see. And of course we know that just about every academic study points to wider bid offer spreads during short selling bans, which of course hurts all investors. And one of the other things that people don't think about is that when there's a short selling ban in a market, a trader that's trading long and short in that market, as soon as they can't trade short, what they end up doing is trimming their positions, not just on the short side, but also on the long side. So it also has an, has an impact on stocks that they would be buying, which they're having to dispose of, which then really feeds downward pressure further, right? And every time that I've tracked it, the truth is, uh, you get like a two day, a three day bounce. But over time, uh, there is no real discernible difference. You know, and I've done a couple of views, particularly on the European markets, where I've compared short-selling ban markets with their next-door neighbors that haven't, and you can't really tell the difference between the two. And just a final point on that: you know, both Christopher Cox, who is head of the SEC, famously said when he left the SEC that the biggest mistake of his career was implementing the short-selling ban. Uh, in the in the GFC. And I know privately a conversation with a former Malaysian regulator said putting in the short selling ban of 1998 was the biggest mistake the exchange made and it took over 10 years to get confidence back from international investors that regulators wouldn't interfere in the markets. Yeah,
1: that's great color Roy. Uh, so in short, are short selling restrictions done mostly for optics? meaning I have no doubt that the regulators have the best interest at heart, but usually the restrictions are put in place once the market's already down 20%. So could PASLA be used as a source of education for the regulators and exchanges around short selling?
3: Yeah, look, I think that's a great point. You know, the reality is that by the time you have the frenzy that's needed to put in a short selling ban, the markets have already fallen. And what that actually means is that the likelihood of of new shorts coming on is is much less. You know this is this is classic uh, shutting the doors after the uh, the, the horses have bolted. Um, so yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think, but I think that's that's the critical rule for Pasla is to try to put context on this and perspective and and really try to bring a, a semblance of reality back to the thinking of regulators who who of course are. You know, although they're not politicians, they're influenced by politicians and, and everyone feels pressure. So, so, you need to do what you can to support uh, the, their improved and enhanced knowledge of uh, conditions. We've seen offshoots of securities finance become very popular in
1: the past 10 years. Some might even call them polarizing. First, there was dynamic pricing, then, there was a huge rush for diverse slash cheaper collateral. Recently, some of the banks have internal risk-weighted average issues. What's the next new thing?
3: Maybe hybrid indemnifications, maybe peer-to-peer lending? Uh, You know, I've done quite a lot recently on indemnifications. Uh, The truth is I don't think indemnifications will disappear. I think they will change in how they're sourced and provided to investors. And while some some firms might back off from doing that, I, I think it's hard to completely remove that from the the framework of institutional investor participants, I don't see anyone really giving that up uh, without a without a struggle. I think peer to peer is going to become increasingly important, but I think there there are limitations on the, the full scale that it can have. You know, uh, I might come back to this later, but I, I'm involved with a, quite a lot of um, illiquid financing as well, and I think peer to peer. Uh, transactions have a really important role to play there, so I think there's niches of that of peer to peer where they will become really important and possibly even dominant uh, participants there. But if I, I if I take a step back and I look back at the wider scale, I'd say that you know it is all about digital assets really in all their forms really, whether that's uh, tokenization, which is probably going to have the first really meaningful impact in the business. But all the way through to crypto assets, you know the the issues and the challenges that I see in the in the crypto world uh, remind me so much of the landscape of securities uh, lending in the '90s, right? You know, look, the banks all have trading desks now because they can see the profit potential for it, but it hasn't really been institutionalized yet, and so you need to come up with scalability, security, uh, confidence. Um, collateralization that people accept, you know, all of the things that we had to go through and convince people of I see as applying to the digital world. So I think that the barriers between securities finance and digital finance will disappear over time. And in fact, from a custody point of view, I've been saying that custody of digital assets wasn't really likely to be internally driven by the big uh, custodians that likely there would be uh, either, uh, you know, uh departments side by side with them that would create new new um uh, capabilities or they would invest in or acquire uh digital custodians and then integrate it and then replace from within so I so I think all of those barriers disappear over time and securities finance and digital financing will will end up being the same thing
1: now I ask this same question to all my guests as I think it's it acts as a helpful career insight and since you've been in securities finance since before computers your historical take
3: is very interesting what makes a good securities lending trader For Any anytime that i've uh, that i've been a trader it's uh, it's not turned out all that well so uh so fortunately there's better people you know in the old days if you were a good phone jockey you could be a great trader right if you could get a call and make a call Uh, and know where to source stock quickly and efficiently, then you were getting the job done. And if on top of that, you're also reading the newspapers and following the markets, maybe you could be a little bit ahead of those that didn't. But today, I think that what you need to do is to be able to harness technology. You need to automate the trades that you don't need to do yourself, right? You don't need to be doing GC trades. Uh, And you also need to use data that can help you identify um, trades, opportunities, structures that really extract some extra value, say, for either you or your firm or your customers. Really, what you need to be is a problem solver, right? You know, will, will automation uh, take away the need for traders? No, what automation will do will take away the need for traders that don't do anything except match supply and demand. Right. You need to be that that problem solver. And so, again, I go back to that concept where I say you need to understand the wider securities finance market. You need to understand different transaction structures. You need to know where swaps fit in and why someone might do a swap rather than a a stock loan or vice versa. So I think having all of that and also having an understanding of what drives your customers uh, probably positions you to be a, a, a great trader. Yeah, well noted. And I want to open Pandora's box for a minute. You've been
1: to countless PASLA conferences, like the scheduled one in Tokyo this upcoming March 2023. Can you give the audience a taste for what to expect and any funny stories that would be an added bonus? For example, my first PASLA conference, they gave me a name badge with Mark MacArthur instead of Matt. 14 years later, half the industry still calls me
3: Mark. Um, yeah, I' I'm not, I'm not certain I can bring most of the most of the stories uh, to uh, to air really because I, I, I still need to make a living in this business. You know the thing about the PASLA conferences that, that I will say is that they have always in my experience, been much more focused on business. I, I have to admit, you know, the reality is, you know, relationship reviews and actually digging into how to do the mutual relationships uh, more effectively. I think that's always been a bigger component of PASLA as opposed to the other conferences that I've attended or chaired or participated in. So it's more business focused. It's, it's also more focused on the real day to day business and less of the infrastructure type issues and often less about regulatory except, except where it relates to specific countries in the region. Understand, understand. Now, 500 years ago when Cortez landed in the new world,
1: he immediately burned his boats. I assume that was his quasi way of motivating his troops. Now you've seen and done it all in the world of securities finance. Any words of advice or motivation for the younger generation?
3: Yeah, look, I spend a lot of time talking to people that are new to the business, whether they're graduates or, or new to their roles. So my suggestion really is, you know, learn as much as you can. Of course, learn your job, but also try to learn about the roles and the and the functions of the people around you. Look at associated areas. So if you're in securities lending try to get to know someone that's sort of your age and experience level in the repo business and exchange knowledge, you know, meet people in your firm, in your counterparties, get to know what they do. Right. So for the first 20 years of my career, I moved uh, a number of times and each time it was to a former customer of mine, because I learned about their businesses. I thought, I thought it was interesting and what I wanted to do was, was see what it's like doing a different role. So, As I learned about their businesses when it came time for me to make a career change or a company change, I was able to demonstrate the value I would add with them. So I'd be able to go in and make a difference there, but I would also learn what they were doing. Now, the truth is that maybe changing firms isn't really the way to go these days. But as I said earlier, the size and scale of the business means that your opportunities internally at firms are much bigger than they were in the past right? So, how do you how do you get those opportunities? You know, I suggest that you volunteer for internal projects when they come up. Uh, if you get the opportunity to join industry committees like they have at PASLA, getting to know people in your industry, discussing important issues, and having an influence on the future are all going to be things that you will benefit from long after the project or the topic is finished.
1: Yeah, I think that the common connotation of PB is prime broker, but I think you nailed it. It's really people business. So hopefully everybody can take that as a takeaway, but that is just my humble opinion. Thanks for your thoughts, Roy, especially as an independent third party, it always helps to get candid market color, no less from someone that's neutral on market events. Appreciate your time and your insights. Before we go, one final message. As Japan relaxes COVID restrictions, We are delighted to announce that the PASLA RMA Conference on Asia Securities Lending will return in person next year in Tokyo, Japan. Taking place at the Conrad in Tokyo from the 7th to March 9th, 2023, the conference will provide the highest level of thought leadership, key trends and topics shaping the securities lending landscape both today and tomorrow. Registration opens soon and more details will be announced in the next few weeks. Stay tuned for more updates on that right here on Asia Securities Finance Monthly. I'm Matt MacArthur in Hong Kong. We'll see you next time.
0: This podcast was brought to you by gold sponsor Equiland, a global fintech firm for the securities finance industry, and silver sponsor Broadridge, a global fintech leader and proven partner to streamline and simplify your securities finance business.